Good morning. It's Friday, the first of September, and this is Govindraj Jethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, and amongst the hottest property markets in the world. And I will explain why shortly. Before we get there, here are our top stories and themes for the day. India's first quarter GDP is at 7.8 percent below most forecasts. An investigative journalism report points more fingers at Adani's offshore shareholding. Mumbai sees record property sales in August as prices set to rise further. Why is Indian IT sounding despondent while global banks, who are their biggest clients, are stepping up spending? An excerpts of the Core Reports Weekend Edition. This is a Core Report with Govindraj Atiraj. GDP is at 7.8% lower than the Reserve Bank and other estimates. The hard data on GDP growth or gross domestic product growth for the first quarter of this financial year seems to be going against the general wave of bullishness touted by many of the government's arms and affiliates, including India's Reserve Bank of India and some other rating agencies as well. The Reserve Bank of India had said that the rate for this quarter would have been 8%. India's GDP grew by 7.8% in the quarter that ended on June 30th, data released by the Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation on Thursday showed. In the April to June quarter last year, the GDP growth rate was 13.1%, obviously on a lower base, and in the previous quarter that's ended on March 31st, it was 6.1%. In its recent bi-monthly monetary policy announcement, the Reserve Bank of India had said that the growth rate could have been 8%. The State Bank of India's Economic Research Department had said that India's GDP growth would have been 8.3%. So all in all, much more bullish statements. Now, going back to the last quarter, the contact intensive sectors or service sectors like trade, hotels, transport and communication did well, seeing a growth of 9.2% in the June quarter. This number has seen a marginal increase from the previous quarter when it was 9.1%. The real estate and financial sector also moved up by 12% on a yearly basis. The number for construction, mining and manufacturing stood around 8, 5.8 and 4.7% respectively and more on real estate in Mumbai shortly. Private consumption which accounted for about 57% of GDP share grew 6% for the first quarter too. India's chief economic advisor V Anantha Nageswaran termed the first quarter GDP growth of 7.8% as a good number and said that the government is comfortable maintaining a gdp growth target of 6.5% for the whole year that's 2023-24 to understand how we could see these numbers in the present and future context more carefully and also to put things in perspective i reached out to aditi nayar chief economist at rating agency icra and i began by asking her how she looked at the 7.8% number when we talk about q1 of fy24 which is april to june also this financial year It's actually a very interesting quarter where we are still looking at a supportive base because last year in the same quarter we were just about stepping out of home, going back to office, going back to work, going back to school. So it's not a very great way to compare either how this quarter was compared to last quarter, but at the same time that quarter also had a similar very strong base. So my suggestion is don't look at how growth. compares to q4 which is january to march of this year or how growth compares to the same quarter last year both of these comparisons are really not very meaningful better to look at how each of the subsectors has performed in this quarter itself to get an understanding of 
how the relative growth went away is across different parts of the world and and what's that telling you aditi so first of all i'm going to start off with the headline number it came in a little bit lower than what we had pensioned it yeah your yours was quite optimistic it was it was at 8 and a half percent and we thought that we were going to get a much bigger boost in terms of the manufacturing gva because commodity prices are now not lower than where they were at the same time last year so last year we had the worst off for the commodity price impact from the russia ukraine war in uh, q1 and this year a lot of those issues have settled at least in the commodity market so we're looking at a much lower yoy comparison in the global commodity index for example and we thought that looking at where corporate margins were how much they had improved in uh, this quarter that we were going to end up with a better growth value addition growth in the manufacturing sector and that didn't turn out to be the case so that is sort of the biggest disappointment really that we're seeing in the uh, breakup of the gdp numbers right and and you said that there are subsectors which you're looking at more closely so what's shining or standing out in your mind So I'm going to switch now to the expenditure side. So the uh, sectoral side is agriculture, industry, and services. So like I said, manufacturing, which is the biggest component of uh, industry, that was the disappointment for us. Services, on the whole, did okay, but some of the breakups are a little confusing. So you know, I, I'm not sure what that means. Agriculture came in a little bit lower than what we were expecting, but that's okay. I mean, you know, it doesn't really make or break the overall growth trajectory. given the size of the deviation is quite small but on the expenditure side here the highest growing sector was cross fixed capital formation or rather you know what we call investment activity so this grew by about 8% in q1 again i must say i am a little disappointed because a lot of the high frequency indicators including government capex were pointing towards a much more strong number uh, coming in on the investment side But hey, eight percent investment growth. I mean, you know, it's not a number that is anything to scoff at. So a little lower than what we were expecting, but still a healthy number. Secondly, private final consumption expenditure has grown by six percent, and this is despite the inflationary environment being what it is. So again, I think it's a reasonable number within consumption. We still have a skew of people preferring to spend on services than on goods. So consumption remains uneven. the third big component over here is the government final consumption expenditure which is where we saw a very flattish trend and that is something that government of india's fiscal numbers had told us because their own non interest revenue expenditure growth was actually non interest revenue expenditure had contracted in q1 so no big surprise that that has been a laggard as far as the expenditure side is concerned how is it looking for the next couple of quarters of course there have been various projections for the whole year is all of this in sync with that or could it change so this quarter that we've been talking about clearly did benefit from the base effect which is now going to go away in fact we're probably going to stop comparing to pre covid from next quarter onwards therefore the headline growth numbers are going to be much more moderate in the quarters ahead Our view is that there are a couple of reasons that growth is also going to slow down. Not just the base effect, but we've had an extremely erratic monsoon rainfall that's still playing out. That is probably going to keep agricultural output growth as well as rural sentiment quite uh, muted going ahead. And uh, secondly, if government capex has been front loaded in Q1, possibly we need to be aware of the fact that it might slow down as we get closer to the elections. So that would be another reason that the growth momentum may not sustain 
unless private sector capex rushes in to fill this gap. And exports have been uh, very sluggish over the last uh, few quarters, especially on the merchandise side. So there again, the output doesn't look like it's going to get too much better. So these are some of the reasons why we think that the pace of growth is going to moderate going ahead. And we think that for the full year, GDP will expand by about 6% in FY24, which is a little lower than what the Monetary Policy Committee has projected. Right, Aditi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Meanwhile, the stock markets yesterday, the BSE Sensex ended at 64,831, down 256 points, while the broader Nifty 50, meanwhile, ended at 19,254, down 94 points. An investigative journalism initiative goes after the Adanis. In the first installment of the Panama Papers, German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung received the documents and was shared by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists with the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP. Basis the Panama Papers, of which there were two key installments, India's Enforcement Directorate launched several investigations and seized assets, including, for example, of 2.7 crore from a Kolkata-based business family a few months ago. Similarly, it seized three immovable properties worth 41 crore rupees in Mumbai in connection with an investigation against a Mumbai-based businessman and his family members under the provisions of the Foreign Exchange Management Act. In the earlier case, the Indian Economic Investigation Agency credited the Panama Papers and in the name of the Mumbai businessman also came up in the Panama Papers. These were just two instances among many of reporting emanating from or linked to reporting done by the OCCRP and I hope you get where I'm going. In March 2016, the Kremlin accused in what seemed like an anticipatory attack a group of international journalists of preparing an information attack on President Vladimir Putin's wealth and his ties to billionaire oligarchs in Russia. The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the same ICIJ I just referred to, was seeking comment on dozens of questions concerning Putin personally, as well as information about his family, childhood friends and business allies, including Yuri Kovalchuk and Arkady Rottenberg. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told reporters on a conference call, according to Bloomberg then. Yesterday, the Adani Group in India refuted allegations that a just-out OCCRP report put out in conjunction with The Guardian and The Financial Times, both UK-based, which claimed to have more direct evidence showing how offshore companies had seemingly manipulated or boosted share prices of Adani Group companies in India between 2013 and 18. The Adani response actually came a week earlier, though not formally, in anticipation of this OCCRP report, presumably triggered by questions that would have been sent seeking clarification. And actually, there were only a few more details following up from the Hindenburg Research Report in January this year, which pretty much suggested the same thing, but it knocked the stuffing out of the company's stock prices earlier this year, more than $100 billion in value, to be specific. Now, both reports refer to individuals running funds out of Mauritius, in turn investing mostly in Adani stock. The latest OCCRP report refers to one Chang Chung Ling and one Nasser Ali Shaban Ali as family associates who began setting up offshore shell companies in Mauritius, the British Virgin Islands and the United Arab Emirates in 2010. Funds controlled by the two through multiple more layers allegedly invested in Adani stocks in India, pushing up prices but also selling at peaks. At many points, the combined holding of these funds and the Adani family would cross the permitted 75% threshold for promoters or founders to own and hence would be a violation of SEGWI regulations. The Adanis have never declared these funds to be their own or even linked with them. 
Now, establishing the trail of fund flow is difficult, but that should not be that challenging for a regulator or regulators in India or overseas. The Securities and Exchange Board of India seems to be struggling a little with this and unable to source information, which the OCCRP seems to have done, at least with these two entities in question. The Adanis have said that all their publicly listed entities are in compliance with all applicable laws, including the regulation relating to public shareholdings and the Prevention of Money Laundering Act. The problem, of course, is that the Adanis are trying to fight or respond legally as such for a misdemeanor, which, if so, is perhaps a little more technical. It's a different matter that some allege that funds have flown out of the country into offshore companies and are now coming back through this route, but that's not proven. As it stands, this is in some ways another opportunity for the Adanis to open up on who their investors are and settle with the regulators on the shareholding level infractions, if so. Maybe nothing will come out of such a show-and-tell operation, but the effort, I think, needs to be there. Possibly demonstrating who these international investors are and making them available to answer questions freely, and then creating an institutional structure that's consistently transparent on who the investors are, even as they come and go. Like bringing in a depository trust as an external manager. It's all been done before, by the way, and could go a long way in bringing about long-term transparency into the way the company works, or more importantly, the investors work. Now, this, of course, is very easily said, but the Adanis know best that it is not Soros, who is among the many funders of OCCRP, by the way, the opposition politicians or anti-national media, as some would prefer it, that really benefit. But their own reputation as a trustworthy company or stocks that is taking repeated and pretty hard knocks. It's not without reason that there is not much institutional investor holding in Adani Group companies, including by Indian mutual funds. For a group that has such a strong exposure to India's infrastructure story, that should be surprising, if not shocking, to the Adanis themselves. Possibly they don't care because they're so convinced that Soros is running a campaign against them, though that would not explain Panama Papers, and that's why I gave that example in the beginning. Or they're too far down the road to make peace, and any admission at this stage might be counterproductive at many levels. Possibly. But it's never too late. At least that's my experience. And if it's the future they're looking at and not the past. Mumbai City is rocking it. Mumbai City saw sales of over 10,550 properties in August, likely the highest ever in history. Now, this is the fifth month this year that there have been sales of more than 10,000 properties, but that it has happened in the month of August has surprised real estate watchers and analysts in the country. It represents, among other things, an increase in sheer volume of sales and purchases of property and, of course, at prices higher than anywhere else in India. The month of August will contribute to a revenue of 790 crores to the government, real estate consulting firm Knight Frank said yesterday. This also showcases a 23% surge in registrations and revenue compared to the preceding year. Of the total block, 80% were residential and 20% were non-residential assets. The first eight months, by the way, saw a little more than 83,000 properties being sold. To understand why Mumbai City was seeing such huge transactions and what it reflected intrinsically about the property market, and more importantly, what the price forecast and outlook was looking like, I reached out to Vivek Rati, Director of Research at Knight Frank, and began by asking him what was going on in the city of Mumbai. Considering the backdrop of all the challenges that came into the market in India, as well as globally, and I'll give you the global references a bit later, but if you look at the numbers in case of Mumbai market, this performance in August is an all-time high performance of a housing sales registration 
not just the developer community which has benefited out of it, but it's the state exchequer, the government which has collected record revenue out of stamp duty collections in this. And we have seen the past 15 to 18 months when home loan interest rates continue to go up almost 2.5 percentage points is been the increase in policy rates. Home loan interest rates have also gone up by 2 percentage points and that has implied a shrinkage of affordability by almost 15% for a typical home buyer. At the same time, property prices also grew in the last 12 to 15 months. With all of this, certainly a performance like this should be considered spectacular. And like I said about the global market performances, the boom in the housing market that you're seeing in India for the last couple of years is not really limited to India. We saw this phenomena globally across the Americas region, Europe, even in Asia region. But in the last 12 months, we've seen some bit of variety where the markets in the US and European region are feeling some pressure, which is reflecting on the decline in volume of property sales there. However, in case of India and generally in Asia, this boom has continued. Okay. So what explains the high sales in August specifically, Vivek? Because seasonally, I'm assuming this is not your best month. Yeah. So monsoon, shower, not really the auspicious period right now. But having said so, consumers generally are enthused by their desire to purchase property. So while the August month numbers reflect the registrations which have consummated in this month, but also sales in this month and a few previous months. And all these periods have also seen good amount of new project launches in locations like western suburbs, central suburbs and central Mumbai region. And all of this has also contributed to this registration wave. In any given year, what's usually the best month to buy property or from at least going by data? So generally, it's a festive month, which is anywhere between September, October to November, December, wherein because of the auspicious tendencies associated with those period registration, will volumes will be the highest. But this year, we are seeing more than 10,000 in several months, right? I mean, in March, April, June, July, and so on. Yeah, like I said, certainly the scale of market has increased and which is why it's not going to be a month in isolation where you're seeing more than 10,000 units. We're expecting this to get even stronger in the upcoming festive season. If you see the numbers for the last couple of years, the scale of the market has continued to go up across the country. And Mumbai being one of the leading markets with very high economic activity and also the strength of the population base it has got, it is continuing to show these numbers. Right. And which brings me to my last question, Vivek. So how are you seeing prices in the next six months or the rest of the year? So on one account, we take cognizance of affordability, which kind of remains a key variable deciding how property prices move. Besides, the other variables are on the direction of construction cost. Now, both of these are pretty much in shape in terms of the movement in the last 12 months or so particularly in the last four or five months with home loan interest rates remaining the same and the expectations are the home loan interest rate can turn down when interest rate cycle turns. So with all of these and in the background, you already have a robust housing sales momentum. Consumers continue to be enthused for purchase of property 
they are taking it as a long term decision even at home loan interest rates 9 9.5% so with all of this in the background we expect prime property prices in mumbai to increase by 5% in the next 12 months which is a growth scenario and this also places mumbai as a market amongst the top 25 26 globally for which we released our forecasts recently right vivek thank you so much for joining me pleasure pleasure govin Well now some consumer product news as an extension perhaps to our daily rice and wheat updates and perhaps time to talk about a plan B. Nestle has said it's widening its millet based product basket in sync with the worldwide push for these nutri cereals and of course government campaigns right here in India. It has launched a bajra based masala millet the latest addition to its 100 crore Nestle A+ brand. Nestle also wants to tap into the generation Z or Gen Z consumer base which tends to have a greater intention to buy healthy snacks and possibly get a larger share of the wallet millet as a category will take time to grow and it's not going to suddenly unlock huge opportunity suresh narayanan chairman and managing director of nestle india said in a media briefing on thursday however gen z is very conscious of what they eat and to that extent i'm hopeful that they would choose these kind of products which are good not just for their health but also for the planet and of course for nestle's bottom line if that finally happens The company will test market the product in the Delhi NCR region and parts of South India before making it available nationwide. It's going to be available in two variants if you were wanting to know that Stangi tomato and veggie masala and has been developed under the guidance of the Indian Institute of Millets Research. And finally before I go It's been a while since Vineet Nair, no relation to Aditi Nair who I just spoke to, stepped down as CEO of HCL, the IT major, to run among other things a nationwide child-focused student initiative via his foundation, the Sampark Foundation. He is however connected still with some of the big challenges facing the Indian IT industry, including the one about how it will adapt to the new forces of digital and artificial intelligence. In a candid conversation, a point that he brought up with me was Why is it that Indian IT is sounding bearish and even on the defensive while many global banks including in the United States are stepping up their spends what explains this seeming contradiction remember banks are a big source of income for Indian IT services company when we come now we see a dichotomy in number 1 what the global banks are saying for example or global customers are saying you take city bank you take jp morgan you take bank of america i'm talking about the customers not the brokerage houses and all of us are they saying they are doubling down on investments in digital and their it spends are only going to increase because that is exactly what is happening in their business they are moving away from what we call physical services to more digital services and they are competing on that landscape so on one side we hear that kind of vocabulary on the other side we hear a vocabulary that indian it is facing a significant slowdown so the first question which comes to my mind is are we wrong footed in the solutions and services we are offering predominantly because every time there was a crisis in the market indian it gained market share now there is a crisis in the market and people are taking money off the legacy and investing in digital and we are facing the pain does that mean that we are wrong footed does that mean we release the margins rather than invest the margins during covid times are we as ready as digital like other companies are so those are the concerns which are coming in my mind question number 1 are we wrong footed 
Look out for the answer to this and more in the Core Report Weekend Edition tomorrow. That's Saturday on Spotify and Apple and of course on YouTube for video. That's it for me for now. Have a great day ahead and see you soon. And do visit us at www.thecore.in for in-depth reports and of course your not-to-be-missed daily newsletter by our fine team led by Rohini Chatterjee. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.